Recent news is illustrative of just how intertwined corporations are with the business of the republic. President Biden, it still sounds weird saying a new president's name, doesn't it? It's like writing last year's date on a check even though it's March. Yes, I'm that old. I write checks. Anywho. President Biden ordered a targeted strike in Syria to avenge a wounded soldier and fallen contractor. In Texas, the private grid gave out during a severe cold snap, causing hardship throughout much of the state and forcing Ted Cruz to flee to Mexico. And of course, we passed the tragic milestone of a half a million dead Americans due to COVID-19. So what's the common thread here? We hold the government accountable for societal ills, but somehow the real power brokers, complicit in our failures, go largely unseen and unpunished. We employ private mercenaries in our war efforts, and they operate under the same rules of engagement as our military. We have a patchwork energy system in the country in the hands of for-profit entities that value shareholders over customers. And our embarrassing response to a pandemic is a painful reminder of the failings of a healthcare system in private hands. If you're frustrated and defeated, you have every right to be. It's not supposed to be this way. But the fact of the matter is we no longer trust the government to deliver the most basic of services. And so when things go wrong in private hands, we tend to blame the government. So we put our faith in private institutions under the almost universally held belief that the public sector simply cannot operate on par with the private sector. This simple premise, upon which our modern military, economy, and society are built, is simply not true. So why do we believe so wholeheartedly in corporate America? Let's find out. Oh, and if you're a regular listener, we have a new introduction coming soon, so bear with the old one for a moment while we touch up the new one a little bit. So buckle up on fuckers as we audit America Incorporated. Oh, my friends, we are fucked. Deliciously, unreservedly, catastrophically fucked. And not the good kind. We'll traverse this audio journey together to upend conventional wisdom, blow up narratives on the left, right, and middle, and use magical devices like facts, logic, and reason to explain how exactly we arrived in Bizarro America, the funhouse mirror version of what was originally intended. We begin this episode of Unfucking the Republic with every commercial for a U.S. company throughout the pandemic all bundled into one. And in fact, we're going to open source this advertisement and allow companies to use it, even if it costs the big agencies millions of dollars in creative revenue. <clears throat> Here we go. Our nation has faced unprecedented challenges, but we faced them before. And like so many obstacles in our history, we came together as one. To the frontline workers and essential personnel, we salute you. You've shown us what it looks like when we band together as one people, united under the cherished flag of our forefathers. We have a ways to go, but that's the thing about America. We never stop, never stop pushing, never stop dreaming, because this is a nation of opportunity. And we here at Insert Company Name Here believe in the spirit of America. It calls each and every one of us, and it's why the men and women of Insert Company Name Here are proud to stand shoulder to shoulder with our customers, our friends, our neighbors. Insert Company Name Here. Stronger. Together. Corporations have taken the place of government in setting the moral and ethical standards for how we operate as a nation. 
They undermine public policy through lobbying efforts, directly author legislation that favors their business models, either alter the tax structure to their benefit or just cheat the system entirely. And their executives move freely between public and private life to protect what they've built. And then they take to the airwaves that they largely control to pacify us with messaging about meeting in the fucking middle and praising the same heroes they refuse to compensate with a living wage. Sorry, Bruce, but old Tom Joad would take a steaming shit on the hood of your Jeep. When Lyndon Johnson had President Kennedy killed, public trust in government was nearly 80% according to Pew Center research. Oh, yeah, uh, can we take that again? The, uh, the Johnson killed Kennedy thing might be problematic. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Um, let's see, how's this? <clears throat> when Lyndon Johnson facilitated the coordinated murder of his boss through the mafia and covert government wow, agents... Uh, Are you sure? Absolutely. Okie dokie. You're the producer. Since the Johnson administration, public trust in government has eroded dramatically from 80% to a low of just 17%, and that was before the pandemic. Relationships with trust issues like these tend not to last very long. So we're going to do a little relationship therapy to understand where this love affair all went wrong. And for good sex, for a wonderful relationship, you do have to know each other. The hostile takeover of America wasn't an accident of history. The decline has been steady, coordinated, and deliberate. Corporations have wrapped themselves in the flag and used democracy and American symbolism to ironically undermine faith in the American system. Large companies have used privatization and deregulation, the dreaded sisters of corporatocracy, to chip away at public trust with the promise of prosperity for all. Now, we've touched on corporate influence in a handful of episodes already, from the ubiquitous presence in our daily lives to the flood of cash directing policy in our politics, and in some cases, yes, literally writing legislation. It's all so normalized that it's hard to comprehend why it's so wrong. We have a tendency also to mythologize corporate America. Not a new phenomenon, mind you, because we've always engaged in hero worship of the moneyed class. Morgan, Carnegie, Rockefeller, Edison... These men captured the imaginations of the public and oftentimes ran parallel to the U.S. government in driving policy. Like Bezos, Musk, Zuckerberg, and Diamond today, these titans of industry ran roughshod over workers and created their own regulatory reality. But in the past, there were also public sector giants that wielded tremendous influence and stood as a check to corporate power. Teddy Roosevelt was a profound and worthy adversary to the giants at the turn of the 20th century earning him the title of Trustbuster. His younger cousin, Franklin, would be called a traitor to his class for his Keynesian approach to economic recovery. And of course, LBJ's Great Society was what some refer to as a regulatory outburst that likely began to sow the seeds of discord among the corporate class that struggled to keep up with the slew of changes to the status quo. Hey Dick, did I miss anyone? There's no question in my mind that in this century, the three greatest politicians, active politicians, were Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson. Nobody else of the presidents was in their league. Yep, got them all. Hey, man, I gotta say, that was pretty magnanimous of you. Tell you what, on fuckers, even Nixon, for all his issues, bucked the corporate class by establishing the EPA and signing the Consumer Protection Act. In fact, it was around this time that corporate America decided to fight back in a coordinated way to undermine what big business viewed as anti-competitive and socialist-style intervention. One of the most prominent and oft-quoted documents of this time is what's known as the Powell Memo. 
While it's a stretch to attribute any movement of this scale to a single memorandum, it is an appropriate touchstone that captures the zeitgeist of the corporate movement. Lewis Powell Jr. was a high-profile and successful private practice attorney who authored a memo to the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in 1971. Powell was dismayed by what he saw as an attack on the private sector from multiple fronts. First, like many Americans at the time, he was a fierce critic of communism and socialism. Not unusual. Of particular annoyance to him was the rise of consumer advocate Ralph Nader, whom he viewed as a destructive force in American politics. So he wrote this now infamous memo that, among other things, advocated for, and I'm quoting here, national television networks to be monitored in the same way textbooks should be kept under constant surveillance, that business must learn the lesson that political power is necessary and should be assiduously cultivated and used aggressively and with determination, and that there should be no hesitation to attack the Naders, the Marcuses, and others who openly seek destruction of the system. All right, so Powell was a cranky old corporate lawyer whose clients were likely impacted by government regulations. And maybe the memo wouldn't be such a big fucking deal if Powell wasn't shortly thereafter appointed to the Supreme Court, a position that even he reportedly thought he wasn't qualified to fill. Much like his successor, Justice Anthony Kennedy, thanks for retiring when you did, fucko, Powell was often in the middle of prominent issues. He had famously liberal decisions and opinions on social issues and some not-so-enlightened stances on issues around sexuality. But on business issues, he was resolutely and predictably on the side of corporations. What makes Powell's memo so important wasn't necessarily the text itself. As I said, it's a bit of a stretch to credit a confidential memorandum to the heads of the Chamber of Commerce as the beginning of a revolution. But it was his ascendance into a position of power to codify these corporate interests in the spirit of the memorandum that makes this such an important historical note. The most significant of cases for which Powell broke the tie and wrote the majority opinion was the First National Bank of Boston First Bilotti, which applied the logic of the First Amendment to corporate financial contributions. And if this sounds familiar on fuckers, it should. This decision was one of the precedents the court relied upon for the Citizens United decision, which we covered in our last episode. Unfucking Congress and the fucking fuckers who fucked us. Simultaneous to Powell's ascendance to the Supreme Court was the emergence of the Chicago School of Economics theories on corporate power. The man most associated with the Chicago School is a man on fuckers know by now as one of my favorite people to shit on, Milton Friedman. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I don't even know you, but I hate you too. And I especially hate you. Friedman wasn't the only one behind neoliberal doctrines, but he was the most successful in spreading the gospel of unregulated capitalism and the idea that corporations should direct domestic and foreign policy by using the levers of power in the financial markets. Friedman is also known for his theory of shareholder value, a horrific myth that has been inculcated into every media pundit, economist, corporate leader, and average American. The idea is that corporations exist to, say it with me, maximize shareholder value. We've heard it a thousand times, and like other successful lies, it persists because it's been accepted and repeated so often, we no longer think about what it means. It's not a legal principle. It's a terrifying principle that when extrapolated to the furthest reaches of one's imagination, essentially means corporations are immune from criticism, regulation, or prosecution, so long as they can maintain their actions were intended solely to maximize profits for shareholders. In recent years, if they run afoul of some regulation, they just lobby to have that shit rewritten. 
It's a nice system if you can buy it. It's bullshit and we have to start moving away from this kind of thinking. Legal concepts have been framed around this idea and codified into dangerous laws that allow these companies to operate with prosecutorial immunity to some of the most egregious public policies that endanger the lives of Americans each and every day. So let's unpack some of the most notable areas of our corporate economy to demonstrate how deep the corporate invasion of our lives have been. We'll look at education, energy, the prison system, water, wastewater, healthcare, and finally, the military. And to my fellow leftists, don't expect this to be a wholesale indictment of private industry, as there are some arguments to support both sides. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Oh my God, that literally gives me post-traumatic douche chills. This is an exercise to understand how complete the corporate infiltration of previously public services has been, and the clear and present danger that exists when the scales tip too far. Okay, unfuckers, who's ready to play Tax Me, Fuck Me, Kill Me? Our contestants today are Corporate America and Public Infrastructure. Corporate America, tell us a bit about yourself. Hey, you can call me CA. I like cocaine, offshore tax havens, cheap labor, and Tesla. Elon rocks! <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. You're great. Public Infrastructure, tell us about yourself. Thank you for having me. I have an advanced degree in engineering. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No one gives a shit. Let's jump into the categories. First off is education. Education is a fucker of a peccadillo for sure. The United States has been lagging in education rankings for decades, which makes it an easy target for proponents of privatization. Thus, the rise in charter schools in the United States. But here's the problem. More than 80% of public school funding comes from local property taxes, which means there's a vast discrepancy between wealthy districts and poor districts. So the system itself is built on a pretty flawed concept. Charter schools operate on the concept of choice, meaning you can apply to a publicly funded school outside of your district pretty compelling argument if you live in a poorly funded area, especially when you look at the effects of redlining in urban and suburban areas. But the publicly funded nature of charter schools, which differs from state to state, means that the funds are being drawn from the same pool of taxes. And with so many states implementing property tax cap measures, the funding squeeze is real. Much to the dismay of charter school advocates, now that we have several years of data, the outcomes are only marginally better across the board, and in some cases, not at all. This is so indicative of how we approach problems in America. Schools are fucked up, so create new ones. Instead of looking at the root cause of the issue, we just jump to the end of the discussion. So if we increased federal funding to support lower-income districts and help them close the gaps created by property tax disparity from district to district, we could level the playing field. But then a whole new cottage industry of charter schools with private boards and little transparency wouldn't exist. Corporate America, one. Public infrastructure, zero. Yeah, I'm fucking winning. Suck it. Our next category is energy. Thank you, Texas, for proving the whole point here. Now, in fairness, according to the World Bank, the United States is well above the median average of quality of electrical supply. So that's great. Of course, that's a global figure. Sadly, we're below the United Kingdom, Denmark, Sweden, France, Canada, United Arab Emirates, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and a host of other countries. So there's that. Now, the World Bank does have data to suggest that there's no difference between reliability and access of public versus private when it comes to distributing energy. 
But where I think we can land here is that if you're in the utility sector, there should be more regulated and adopted standards of efficiency, durability, access, and reliability. Utility providers in Texas, for example, shouldn't be able to simply decide to ignore science and fail to weatherize critical infrastructure. So we're going to give one point to corporate America and a half credit to public infrastructure. Score, two to point five. That's fucking bullshit. This is like everyone gets a trophy crap. Next up, prisons. I fucking never go to prison, bruh. I know, CA. Settle down. The biggest fear of the private prison industry is the state-by-state repeal of onerous drug laws that were a boon to the industry. Here's the problem. That we have a fucking private prison industry to begin with. And what do you do if the laws that made you are in danger of going away? You find new areas to break into, like, I don't know, immigration detention. According to the Sentencing Project, from 2000 to 2016, the number of people housed in private prisons increased five times faster than the total prison population. Over a similar time frame, the proportion of people detained in private immigration facilities increased 442%. Sometimes, you gotta make your own reign. Know what I mean? The largest private prison company in America is CoreCivic, formerly known as Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA. And their logo is adorable. It's red, white, and blue, of course. And it's a big box that looks like prison bars are flipped so they're horizontal. You know, just like our flag. That's what I'm talking about when corporations attack the government and then wrap themselves in American symbolism to sell their services as some sort of patriotic, cost-effective system. This one should be fairly fucking clear, though. Carceral and corporate incentives are completely misaligned. As a society, we want intervention to prevent incarceration. And in the cases where this doesn't work, we want to lower recidivism. But these corporations possess exactly the opposite incentives. In their SEC filing, CCA even says as much. They cite their biggest threat as being the reduction of potential clients due to drug laws disappearing. It's fucking beyond comprehension that this system exists in private hands at all. But here we are. Full point to the corporations. Half point to the system for beginning to repeal drug laws that led to mass incarceration. Score three to one. I was wondering if we're going to be asked any questions here. Shut the fuck up. I'm sorry. Water. This is a fun one. Everybody loves water. Here again, the largest U.S. private water company is called American Water. Seems rather innocuous. I've seen presentations from them and the other big guys like Suez and Veolia, and they make so much sense. Except that they don't. Just ask the residents of Flint and Pittsburgh. In both cases, problems existed prior to Veolia's involvement, but in both cases, the situation worsened after they came in. Now, in fairness, there's a lot of blame to go around in these extreme situations, but the underlying premise remains the same. Federal funding for water infrastructure dropped more than 75% since 1977. So, as the public infrastructure gets older and requires more funding and attention, the money is drying up because of our aversion to infrastructure spending unless it's in a, I don't know, a city in some remote country that we've almost blown off the fucking map in pursuit of their oil. So most municipalities that sell their rights to water companies do so because the cost to fix and maintain them is just way too high. They take a one-shot, balance the budgets, and lose control of their water system. And what happens every single fucking time? After a couple of years of price controls, residential water bills start to increase. Basically, a new additional tax, but paid to a private company. And there's nothing you can do about it. 
Again, misaligned incentives. Clean running water that doesn't light on fire or give you cancer should kind of be a first world expectation, no? Full point award to corporate America. Score four to one. Yeah, bro, I'm fucking winning. Wastewater. Okay, so there's the water we drink. What about the water we flush? Guess what? It's the same fucking guys. Ding, ding, ding. For municipalities that control wastewater, it's also the same fucking lousy equation. If you've ever toured a wastewater facility, it's pretty shitty. (laughs) Seriously, these plants are truly engineering wonders, but they're fuckers to run. And as you can imagine, they take a tremendous amount of upkeep. I want you to think about all of the things that you flushed down the toilet for a second and just meditate on that. Many of the homes in the country have cesspools that are fucked up enough, but most of the large urban areas where the majority of the population resides have massive wastewater facilities that remove your poop, remove your tampons and rags, kids' toys, whatever. The hope is that the byproduct is cleaned enough to be pumped back into the environment without killing every living thing. A failing wastewater treatment plant is a fucking nightmare. But once again, we're creating an opportunity for private industries to come in and blame underfunded authorities for improper maintenance instead of just letting them fucking do their jobs. And do you know who these companies wind up hiring when they take over? The same fucking people that already work there because the government and authority employees actually know what the fuck they're doing. You just have to give them the money to fucking do it. And yes, the misaligned incentive structure holds true here as well. These companies come in with a massive capital investment to bring facilities up to operational standards. They keep the rates the same for a couple of years. And then like clockwork, they pass the cost of their improvements along in pilot programs that taxpayers wind up paying for five to one. Booyah! Healthcare. Ooh, this is a big guy. Well, it's certainly a well-known fact that we spend more on healthcare than nearly every other industrialized nation. And yet, in many comparisons, the U.S. has a lower overall life expectancy. Isn't that what we should be judged on? Anywho, on the whole, we have the same or worse outcomes than other nations that are far more efficient in the way they fund and distribute healthcare. So why can't universal healthcare get traction in this country despite its popularity in polls and relative success in other countries? Well, I think one of the reasons is that almost 15% of the workforce is tied to healthcare in this country. Healthcare is another episode, and personally, I land in the universal camp, but the employment transition is often overlooked. What we need to come to grips with is that beyond the humanitarian aspect and general welfare of the population, our metrics are fucked. Efficiency, cost, access, and outcomes, that's what matters. And on these measures, we're failing. We're not failing as badly as some proponents of abolishing the private system like to say. For example, as lousy as the vaccine rollout in the U.S. has been, we're actually leading the way thanks to... Oh my God, I fucking hate to even say the words... Thanks to Operation Warp Speed. Maybe it wouldn't be as insulting if he didn't name everything that he did after a fucking Star Trek episode or so. Anyway, we have a long way to go, but we did actually put our wealth to work in securing vaccines from the providers. The bottom line when it comes to healthcare, and I know this is a sweeping generalization of one of the most critical and complicated issues possible, is that we have great care in this country. Just not for everyone. Costs are too high, access is too limited. It's simply not equitable care. I'm granting even points here, even though my heart really doesn't want to. Corporate America, six. Public infrastructure, two. And that brings us to our last category, the military. Let's dig back into the archives for a moment. One of our first episodes was titled Priorities, War, Wealth, and Welfare. 
In and I made the case for funding most of the things we just talked about by taking funds away from our trillion-dollar-a-year military apparatus that accounts for 57% of discretionary funding in the budget. I'm not relitigating that right now, so you'll have to go back and listen if you want to fight with me on this. Beyond the moral consequences of having the largest military budget by a factor of 10 over the next dozen countries, almost all of which are allies, by the way, and maintaining more than 850 bases throughout the globe to promote peace unironically, it's the most fiscally irresponsible way to spend half of one's budget. Beyond the massively lucrative defense contracts that are awarded with less oversight than what we print in a child's textbook, the most troubling trend is the outsourcing of mercenaries to do our dirty work. If we already have the greatest military in the world and the largest budget in history, why the fuck would we outsource operations to, get this, upwards of 200,000 active military contractors, loosely defined as armed and unarmed, with 50,000 of them working directly for U.S. Central Command, which is the Unified Combat Agencies. By the way, not all these contractors are U.S. citizens. What? So on top of the fact that they skirt freedom of information requests, hide under the umbrella of military liability, some aren't necessarily citizens of the United States. Does anyone else see the inherent conflict of human fucking interest here? We only go to war in countries that promote our corporate neoliberal interests. Defense contractors have been minted over the past couple of decades, and now we're literally paying non-military personnel to do who knows what. Double points and a slow clap standing ovation awarded to corporate America on this one. Final score, eight to fucking two, corporate America wins again. Thanks for playing. You win, we lose. This brings us to where we need to land. You can't have it both ways. You can't have a completely unregulated market where regional monopolies can develop and operators can create their own environmental standards or throttle access of key services based on your ability to pay. That is the definition of inequity. We need a healthy mix of regulations backed by government incentives that reward efficiency and promote innovation. We have to move past this argument that private industry can do it more cost-effectively, do it better, do it more efficiently. These are the wrong measures. Plus, it's easy to make these arguments when you defund government efforts to manufacture the outcome you need to justify privatization. Corporate America likes to complain about being overregulated and overburdened, but their record profits over the last couple decades tell a different story. And if you want to hop in your DeLorean and head back to pre-EPA days, let me know if you want to return to that place for good. Yes, I'm old enough to remember what the 70s smelled like. You don't want to go back. Corporations have made record profits in recent decades. And the record profits they've made in recent decades, they've been largely able to shelter these gains on the sidelines and in shareholder pockets. They've done as they've pleased, pushed innovation only when it suited them for economic purposes, and beaten back regulators every step of the way while worker protection suffered, income from the majority of Americans stalled, and the rest of the world moved beyond us in the areas that should matter to us most. Unless we decide that the only benchmark that matters to us is the number of billionaires that we create, in which case we're right on track. Otherwise, we need to shed the notion that regulation and innovation are mutually exclusive. So at your next local council meeting, when a corporate representative for some huge company shows up with a flag pin in his or her lapel and a promise to improve the quality of life in your community, in return for the right to pour your tap water, clean your shit water, stick a finger in your ass and give you an aspirin, power your homes and teach your kids, tell them to unfuck themselves and have a great day. Here endeth the lesson. Hey, unfuckers, thanks for listening to another episode. I can't thank you enough 
all the amazing support that you're giving us. You're finding us on Facebook. You're finding us on Twitter. You're buying us cups of coffee by going to unftrpod.com. Email us if you want to get in touch with us, unftrpod at gmail.com. Give us suggestions for topics that you want to hear. Let us know what you think about the show. If you want a shout out at the end of the show, by all means, email us. Let's have a conversation. We want to try and make this interactive now and hear what you have to say. We've got incredible feedback through social media and through email on the site, so I super appreciate everybody getting in touch that way. And remember, you can find the essays that these episodes are framed around on Substack. Just go to unftr.substack.com. We have a couple of new features coming up in episodes down the road that I think you're going to appreciate. Some of these are based on your suggestions, so we are listening and we will incorporate them. Thank you. Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. The show is hosted and distributed by none of your fucking business. Visit unftrpod.com, subscribe for free to our essays at unftr.substack.com, and follow us on Twitter at unftrpod. Now, go unfuck yourselves and have a great day. <laughs>